All right, well, let's continue our look at the book of Romans. I would invite you to turn to chapter 9, and if you don't have your scriptures with you, we have the, uh, uh, the privilege of, <laughs> go, go see Derek. He'll get you a Bible. And uh, so, no more excuses. But if you don't have your Bible, there's a, 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 we printed it out in, in your bulletin. And, and basically, what I'm going to do today is just read, I'm not going to read the entire section but just the last few verses. But I do want to point out, because we've been trying to continue, and I hope those of you that have not been here every single week, that maybe you can go back and listen to the audio, I don't know, or or come and talk to Dawson and I. We'd be glad to talk to you about. These are difficult topics that the Apostle Paul brings up throughout his letter, not just in Romans 9, but, I mean, all of the first eight eight uh, chapters of Romans, he has just bombarded us with incredible uh, truths and information, and some of them are hard to take in because we are not good at looking inside. We always measure ourselves by what we think is good and proper, and we measure ourselves against people, and we say, I'm not as bad as them, and uh, I don't do the things they do which already you just did two things that are worthy of death. Just in that kind of an attitude. And, but that is the human condition and the fall that occurred in our lives uh, in the Garden of Eden is plaguing us to this day. So uh, I'm going to start reading in verse 22, and we'll read to verse 33. So hear God's word, and then I'll, I'll catch up after that. In the same way, even though God has a right to show his anger and his power. He is very patient with those on whom his anger falls, who are destined for destruction. He does this to make the riches of his glory shine even brighter on those to whom he shows mercy, who were prepared in advance for glory. And we are among those whom he selected, both from the Jews and from the Gentiles. Concerning the Gentiles, God says in the prophecy of Hosea, those who were not my people, I will now call my people. And I will love those whom I did not love before. And then at the place where they were told, you are not my people, there they shall be called the children of the living God. And concerning Israel, Isaiah the prophet cried out, Though the people of Israel are as numerous as the sand of the seashore, only a remnant will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth quickly and with finality. And Isaiah said the same thing in another place. If the Lord of heaven's army had not spared a few of our children, we would have been wiped out like Sodom and destroyed like Gomorrah. What does all this mean? Even though the Gentiles who were not trying to follow God's standards, they were made right with God, and it was by faith that this took place. But the people of Israel who tried so hard to get right with God by keeping the law never succeeded. Why not? Because they were trying to get right with God by keeping the law instead of by trusting Him. They stumbled over the great rock in their path. God warned them of this in the Scriptures when He said, I am placing 
a stone in Jerusalem that makes people stumble, a rock that makes them fall. But anyone who trusts in Him will never be disgraced. Amen. This is God's Word. So Romans has a lot of these passages that are very difficult to get your head around. Now, I've, I am a Presbyterian minister in a very conservative denomination, the PCA, and so uh, we, we proudly and gladly and happily and with all humility say that God's Word is our final, uh, our final rule for faith and practice. We, get, we believe in the inerrancy, infallibility, and... Uh, the reliability of Scripture, the fact that it's inspired by God's Holy Spirit, um, and we don't cut any corners. Gary went through all this this morning in a wonderful Sunday school class. What does that mean? Well, it means that God has power to do as He pleases. On the one hand, He is omnipotent. He doesn't have to ask anybody for permission to do what he wants to do. He hasn't asked me anything yet. I've had a lot of great ideas, and he never comes and talks to me about them. He does what he wants, and he does as he pleases. However, he's not capricious. He's not fickle. He's not strange in that way. It's not like he's just haphazardly deciding what goes on. He is a righteous and just God full of tender mercy and loving kindness. And until you see that foundation, a lot of the things that Paul talks about can come across as being harsh. Especially when you get into chapter 9 of Romans. It's not the first place he's mentioned the topic of predestination and election. Uh, but as, um, as a Reformed believer, I am completely committed to those doctrines of election and predestination. And what we mean by that is that God is not counting any other thing outside of Himself for why you are in this room today, why He brought you here through a lifetime. Who knows the, the millions of iterations of life and God is moving through all of that. Every breath you take brings us to this place. Then He does not choose for us. He does not deposit faith into a faithless heart. What He does is He frees us from the shackles of sin and death, which Paul has gone, of eight chapters now, he's gone into depth about how we were in bondage. You want to talk about, you know, people say, well, you Calvinists, you, you have your puppet theology. Everybody's a puppet on a string. You know what? You are a puppet on a string. You are a puppet on a string. Make no mistake. But God's not the one holding those strings. The one holding those strings is sin and death. And behind that is Satan, the great enemy of God. And we saw what happened in the Garden of Eden in chapter 3. We lost our freedom. And don't make any mistake, folks. You are, it's not like you're not free. You have free will. But you're nuts if you think your will is free. You're crazy if you think that your will is not encumbered by something. And what we believe that Paul is talking about in these first eight chapters is that we're 
under the control of sin and death. And God comes and through an amazing display of grace and mercy and loving kindness and, 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 and just, just pure goodness, He frees people so that they can trust Him. He does this for no reason other than himself, whatever is behind. If he came and explained why he chose you or me or why you're, why you're privileged to live in this city, come to this church, live in this country, uh, eat plenty of food, every one of us is on a diet of one side or another. I mean, we're, we're, we're so blessed and so privileged. Why? Well, because God has been moving our lives along with His grace. Why doesn't He do it for everybody? Why doesn't He do that for everybody? That's the question that Paul is answering in Romans chapter 9, 10, and 11. Why not everybody? And as my professor, uh, R.C. Sproul, used to tell us at seminary, wrong question. Wrong question. question is, why anybody? Why anybody? Do you have such a high view of yourself that you think you deserve to be a Christian? That you deserve somehow to have merited His grace? Or that God is some kind of a fortune teller? He's got a crystal ball and He's looking down the tunnels of time to see what you will do if you'll turn out good or bad? And then on the basis of those choices that you do down there in the, in the recesses of time because He knows everything, that He somehow takes that into account and reaches out and chooses you because you're going to turn out good. Well, I've just described to you what it is to save yourself. Not to be saved by God's mercy and grace. My brother David always says theology is all about vocabulary, and that's true. What do you mean by free? What do you mean by predestined? What do you mean? Does it mean God takes away our choice? No. Does it mean that he eliminates uh, uh, any actions on our part? No. In fact, you're going to have to act. If you're here today and you don't know Jesus, you better choose him right now. Put your faith in him. Trust him. Well, I don't have much faith. You don't need much faith. All you need is the size of a mustard seed. You put that faith in Jesus Christ and it takes on the smallness and the paltriness of your faith, takes on the strength and the glory and the majesty of this King. And you become a new creation by grace, through faith, plus what? Nothing! Not any foresight of God looking down, seeing how great you'll be. Nothing like that in the secret recesses of His own will. He does what He wants. And the first thing that comes into our mind is, that's not fair. Instead of saying, thank you, Jesus. And knowing that He's that way, letting that propel you into your world. Next door, Across the street, as Derek said a moment ago, across the tracks, maybe to people that are not the same as you, same color, same, same uh, class, same money, same whatever, uh, education, across the tracks, and maybe across the ocean. Who knows what God will do? Imagine that. 
this great God. We ask the wrong questions. And we do the same thing to God now, today, in this 21st century that Adam and Eve did to God in the garden. What have you done? Where are you? And the woman says, what? The serpent, the serpent you created, he tempted me. And the man is courageous man. The woman you gave me. And we've been blame shifting ever since, folks. We want to blame God when he gave them paradise and they chose a snake. I mean, for goodness sakes. Our job, Dawson and I, our job is to look inside ourselves to see what the problem is with our humanity and then to come and dump it on you. Because we're all like this. And so Paul is not saying that we're automatons or that we're robots or puppets on a string, at least not to God. He is saying, rejoice. The Lord has freed you. Now go out. And because... I will move when you preach my word. We're going to look at that in chapter 10. I will do it. It's not up to you. You don't have to be the great apologist that has all the answers. You don't have to be the the great Bible scholar. You could just know that one scripture that Derek mentioned. For God so loved the world that He gave His Son. He didn't come into the world to condemn the world, but so that the world through Him might be saved and we're appealing to everybody choose this great king but once you've chosen him and once you're trusting him you're going to go through periods in your life of doubt and struggle and there's going to be warfare spiritual and otherwise going to be all kinds of things that happen that you think how am I how am I saved am I sure that I'm a Christian how do I remain so here's a, a thought exercise for you. Don't, don't say it out loud, just in your mind. Um, I don't, I'm not sure that I'm a Christian. I'm not sure that I'm a Christian because... Dot, dot, dot. What would the answer be? I'm not sure that I'm a Christian because... How would you fill in the blanks? Well, I'm not sure that I'm a Christian because, you know, this past weekend I drank too much and I got on the internet and I looked at some dirty pictures and I scolded my wife for her cooking and I uh, decided that I hated my pastor because he keeps talking about these things that uh, (laughs) that bother me. (laughs) Really. So what you're saying in effect is if you can get rid of all those bad behaviors... What? Maybe then I'll be saved, right? Man, folks, that's the problem. We really do think down deep inside our souls that there is something we can do to contribute. And if there is, if there is one molecule of this universe that you can contribute to your salvation... 
then we're not talking about grace anymore. We're not talking about mercy. We're not talking about that. We're talking about something else. God does not give you a lift. He doesn't give you a leg up. He doesn't help you. he, He doesn't help you make the right decisions. He doesn't do anything like that because it would not be called salvation. It would be called cooperation. And if you believe that you are cooperating with God to move you to your salvation, then you are not saved by grace and you're not saved by mercy. You're saved the old-fashioned way by works. Even if it's 1% your work. But God in His grace comes in and he, and he uses all of these scriptures we've been looking at these past few weeks to show you that your confidence when, when things are not going well, when you're not sure who's got me or do I have God, am I holding on to tie a rope, tie a knot in the end of the rope and hang on, then the rope is saving you. Your ability to tie a knot is saving you. What about those of us that weren't in the Navy, Gary? I don't know how to tie a knot. Good luck for me. I'm I'm out, right? I'm just going to fall. But the Scriptures don't say tie a knot and hang on. The Scriptures say, I have bound you with cords of love. I've done that. You don't do that. I do that. And folks, if that is not enough motivation for you to give to the Gideons and go out there and do our harvest party last night, I mean, this young man right here worked his tail off and the results, amazing. God honored our prayers and brought people. Why would we do that? Because He promised. And based on that promise, that our trust in Him, Dawson put in the work and the effort and all of you that volunteered. Amazing. You see, it doesn't paralyze you and think, well, if God's just going to choose, we'll let Him do it. And you get to heaven and you're standing there and, and God says, I have a question for you. You don't want to hear those words, folks. I have something, I've got something I need to ask you. How did you get so arrogant as to just sit back and do nothing when I had all these millions of billions of people out there that were just begging for somebody to tell them the truth. And you didn't do it, and you laid it on me. Well, you go ahead and save them if you want to. You're going to do it anyway, right? Folks, do you see what I'm saying? I'm not scolding you, but listen, I am scolding you. Christians argue, I think in the next couple of weeks I'll bring you this little thing that Charles Simeon and John Wesley had a, had a correspondence at the end of Wesley's life. It was amazing. Charles Simeon, a, a staunch Calvinist, and John Wesley, a staunch Arminian. And the young Charles Simeon wrote a letter to uh, John Wesley and they had this interchange. It was beautiful. If more people would treat each other like they did and treat their scriptures like they did, we wouldn't be having these arguments. Maybe we would actually be able to go out and and preach the gospel with somebody. Okay, so I've said all that. I'm sorry I don't want to take too much time, but let's look real quickly at these verses. And uh, if necessary, I'll come back, but I want to try to get uh, to, to the bottom of it. If you want a good resource that will help you balance or uh, get a good a look. I'm not much for balance, but if you, get a, you want to get a good look at evangelism and the sovereignty of God, get uh, J.I. Packer's book by that name. Um, 
Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God by Dr. Packer. Fantastic uh, resource. So the charge that we make against God is that is not fair. And we saw that in verse 14 through 16. Paul asks the question. He's a good rabbi, so he's going to ask a rhetorical question. Are you saying that God is unfair? He's referring to Jacob and Esau, God choosing Jacob, not choosing Esau. Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. And we go, oh my God, how could God hate anybody? We explained all of that. And if you have questions, I'm happy to meet with you, Dawson, any of our elders. We're happy to meet with you and talk to you about it. If you have questions, that's a good sign. If you have no questions... That's not a bad, that's a bad sign. Are you saying God's unfair? Of course not. And then what Paul does is he gives two examples. The first one is he gives an example against Moses and the nation of Israel. He recalls a scripture from Exodus where Moses goes to the mountain to get the Ten Commandments. While he's up there, they do what? They melt their gold and they make a golden calf and they're down there worshiping this calf. And God tells Moses, get down there quick. You can't believe what they did. That's my translation of the original Hebrew. Get down there quick. And he did. He goes down. Sure enough, he finds them in this horrific transgression. Weeks after watching some of the greatest miracles in the entire scripture. And here they are. And yet he goes and defines himself to Moses saying, here's what I want you to know about me when Israel deserved death. Here's what I want you to know about me when Israel deserved death. I'm merciful I'm gracious, I'm slow to anger, I'm abounding in chesed, steadfast love, this amazing word in Hebrew, this loyalty of love despite what the other person does, just a tenacious, relentless holding on to you. When you have built a calf and fallen down and worshiped the calf, and he said, I still won't let you go. Wow. I mean, come on, folks. Amazing. Grace. Keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin. I won't, for, I won't forget the guilty. I will be just and punish them, but only for a generation or two. That's what he's saying. Even if it's that. That's the comparison. Thousands get mercy. Some people will get justice. So Israel deserved judgment, and what did they get? Mercy. Then he uses the example of Pharaoh, and he uses some hard language about hardening Pharaoh's heart. And I hope you, you were able to get what I was trying to tell you. There's a, there's a nuance to the way that that passage is uh, translated because the context is back in Exodus chapter 9. And here's what happened. Between the sixth and seventh plague of the ten, God sent Moses and Aaron back to speak to Pharaoh because Pharaoh was continuing to harden his heart. So God sends Moses, and this is a literal translation uh, that I think would have been nice but if, if they could put this in a Bible, but that's why we have scholars. Here's what it should say. 
By now I could have stretched out my hand and struck you. These are God's words to Pharaoh, literally. I could have stretched out my hand and struck you and your people with a plague that would have wiped you off the face of the earth. But for this reason did I cause you to stand. That's what this word hardened means, to stand, to get stiff. This is what I caused you to stand or I appointed you or better yet, more literally, I spared you. I spared you in order to show you my power that my name could be proclaimed in all the earth. But you, he's talking to Pharaoh, you still lord it over my people. So who's hardening who? Pharaoh's heart was hard. And when God says, I've come to you now between the sixth and seventh plague, I'm warning you, the seventh one is hail. It's going to kill every living thing out there. You, Pharaoh, tell your people, get your livestock inside and I will protect them. Even the Egyptians he was offering mercy. I spared you. You hardened yourself. And the more God gave Pharaoh mercy, what did he do? Harder and harder and harder. God warns Pharaoh and Israel. They don't listen. Israel does. And they're spared. So in 18, he says, God chooses to show mercy on some. Others, he chooses to harden. In other words, his posture towards them may be merciful, but they're still hard. They're not going to change. So Egypt received justice. Somebody say amen. Egypt received justice. Israel received mercy. And it was entirely within God's right to do whatever He wanted. And He chose to show mercy and He chose to execute a righteous and good judgment. I had a professor in seminary, Mike Glodo. Some of you may remember Mike was here, I don't know, 15 years ago. We brought him to do a theological conference. A lot of fun. Mike is a sweet, sweet man. And his wife is uh, Vicky, really sweet lady. And she had a, a set of china that uh, her had been passed down through her family, I think from her grandmother, great-grandmother. Came, finally, this set of china came to her. It was not no more of that kind of china. And so it was a treasured possession. Well, they had a seminary student over for dinner one night. She put out her best china. You probably already know what happened the young man dropped one of the little coffee cups and little teacups and shattered it into a million pieces. Well, he was horrified because Mike and Vicky also have a daughter who they were planning to pass down this beautiful set of china that's irreplaceable. And so this young man was just devastated. And no matter what Mike and Vicky said to him, he could not, he just could not get his head around, oh, it's okay, it's okay. You don't, I'll find, I'll pay you, I'll do whatever. He wanted to do anything he could to make it good, you know, make, make things all right. And Mike finally told him, look, we're telling you it's okay. We're granting you mercy. Learn it now. Otherwise, I'm not going to let you graduate because you'll go out there and make the church, a, a, you'll, you'll be a monster. 
Mercy. Did it cost Mike and Vicky? Yes, it cost them something. But wasn't it in their right to be able to extend that to them? Didn't they have the right? If that's true, if you can say yes, of course they have the right to forgive for breaking the coffee cup. Then who are we to tell God you don't have any rights unless we give them to you? That is ludicrous, folks. And that is what Paul is trying to get. He's trying to build into us with some blunt rebukes and, and you know, as gently as he can, humility. You know, hey, you're not, you're not the potter. You're not the clay. You're not nothing. How do you get this idea that you are so magnificent that God owes you something? So R.C. used to say, all humanity will receive justice, Some will receive mercy. No one will receive injustice. And that's true. We will deal out injustice by the bucketful and and we will justify ourselves for our injustice. God never, nobody will be in hell just because of some willy-nilly, you know, God throwing a dart at a, at a dartboard, some cosmic dartboard and saying, oh, yeah, I think I like Chuck today. Uh, Dawson, no. See, actually, it would be the other way around. <laughs> Do you get the point? I mean, we think that he's just willy-nilly. He's not. So in verse 20, or verse 19, he says, well, why does God find, why does God blame or find fault. Aren't we doing just what He makes us do? I don't know how many of you like crime novels or crime uh, uh, movies, you know, these movies where there's a terrible psychopathic, sociopathic killer. Very often in these movies, the psychopath, the sociopath, is murdering and killing people And when they catch him, or when he's murdering or torturing somebody, he's saying to them what? Look what you made me do. Look what you made me do. This is psychopathic, sociopathic thinking. When we say, well, I'm just doing what God makes me do, that's nutty. But listen, there's no lack of nuttiness in a human being. It's called the noetic effects of sin. It affects our thinking and degrades our thinking. It affects our heart and our emotion, degrades our hearts and our emotion, our psychology. Everything gets degraded. And the only way to come back from that death is for God to do something for you. And the old saying, God helps those that help themselves, while there's some truth in it, as a, as a proverbial saying, it's not scriptural. Not when it comes to your eternal destiny. Yes? And a lot of other things, yeah, you've got to work. He'll help you with all that. But not with this. This one thing, he reserves the right to himself as almighty God And so he uses this incredible illustration of the potter and the clay. Uh, You know, who are you to talk to the potter and you're just a lump of clay? What he's actually saying, what he's actually doing, he's asking you to be a smart person, to be a thoughtful person, and to say, 
Am I a pot? Are you a pot? Are you a human being? Are you just a lump of clay? No, you know that you're not a lump of clay. You know that you're not a pot. You know that God has been gracious to you. You know that He has, he has been orchestrating things to, hold, to be good to you. And all we can do is point back at Him and saying, You're not fair. And it's my hard job, folks, to come in and tell you that kind of thinking's got to stop. If you read Romans and you just get to the 18th verse of the first chapter and read the next few verses to verse 32, 18 through 32, you will stop blaming God for why the world is the way it is. And Dawson and I aren't going to let you off the hook. The world is the way it is because we made it that way. Every child dying of starvation in Ethiopia is because we as a human race have made it that way. Who said amen? You get extra stars for saying amen. Thanks, God. Think about it. The world is the way it is because of us, not because of God. God made a beautiful world. He created it perfect. We turned our back on Him, not Him on us. No, never. So he, uh, he asserts this uh, sovereignty of God and he leaves it at that. And um, so I don't want to go any longer, so I'm going to stop. Will you give me another week? See, I asked you last week, right? All right, give me another week. Let me finish with this. When we get to the final verses in chapter 9 about the rock, there's a context to that scripture as well. Here's your homework. Go uh, read the 30, uh, 30 through 33 of Romans 9. Look in your cross-reference in your Bible uh, because it'll take you to Isaiah 28. And what you will find out about the rock will rock your world. Because the nation of Israel had made a covenant with death in chapter 28. Isaiah is scolding them, is warning them. You made a covenant with Mot, the God of death. You made a covenant with death and you thought that that covenant with death, since he's the God of death, would help you overthrow any kind of action that the God of Israel might do against you and any of that. If you can control these gods, then you're safe. You made a covenant with death. But I'm going to bring a rock that's going to cause you to stumble. In fact, you're not going to get past my rock. You will fall. But if you will fall on the rock, it will save you. If you let the rock fall on you, what will it do? Crush you to powder. That rock is Jesus Christ. And He earned the old-fashioned way by His good works. He earned the right to offer to us salvation freely, no cost. Take it. Trust me. Will you do it? I hope you will.
Father, thanks uh, for your word and for this time together. Wow, I don't know how in the world we miss the truth of your love and your goodness and get all our, ourselves all up in a bunch about whether or not we are puppets. That's ridiculous. Please help us, Father. Free us. Give us hearts of humility. We pray this in your name. Amen.